This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's something no one wants to think about. Becoming widowed brings a huge emotional upheaval but it can also create major financial complications. Today, I'll be joined by Kelly Willis, a financial planner and a widow herself, to find out how best to cope. Plus, after years of planning, controversy, and cost overruns, it's opening weekend for the Canadian Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg. I'll talk to the museum's CEO, Stuart Murray. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A 93-year-old man has been charged with 300,000 counts of accessory to murder for serving as an SS guard at the Nazis' Auschwitz death camp. Oskar Gruning is accused of helping to operate the concentration camp in occupied Poland between May and June 1944, when some 425,000 Jews from Hungary were brought there and at least 300,000 were immediately gassed to death. Part of his job was dealing with the belongings stolen from the camp victims. Gruning, who is in good health, is one of about 30 former Auschwitz guards who German federal prosecutors started investigating just last year. After 37 years in charge, Larry Ellison is stepping down as the CEO of Oracle, the computer company he co-founded in 1977. Oracle's technology has become the foundation of the world's information systems. From online commerce to major governments and industry, most of the digital world runs on its databases. Oracle has made Larry Ellison the seventh richest man in the world with an estimated net worth of $46 billion. Now at 70 years old, he is stepping aside and handing his job to his two top lieutenants. Safra Katz and Mark Hurd, who become co-CEOs. Ellison will remain as executive chairman. It seems most Canadians feel that life is good. A new StatsCan report finds 77% of people aged 15 or older are considered to be psychologically flourishing. The research is based on the 2012 Canadian Community Health Survey, which showed that men and women were equally likely to have complete mental health. Zoomers are doing especially well. Age is a strong factor in psychological well-being, with 80% of those 65 and older having strong mental health, compared to 65% of those aged 15 to 24. A new report is encouraging Americans to make conversations about death part of their everyday life. Dying in America was released this week by the Institute of Medicine. The report suggests that end-of-life conversations should start around the age of 16 when teenagers get their driver's licenses. Follow-up conversations with a counselor, nurse, or social worker 
should come at other points in early life, such as turning 18 or getting married. The idea is to help normalize the advanced care planning process by starting it early and getting guidance in case of a rare catastrophic event. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's been 14 years in the making amid cost overruns and controversy. The Canadian Museum for Human Rights was the brainchild of the late media mogul Izzy Asper, and it is finally opening to the public this weekend in Winnipeg. I talked with CEO Stuart Murray. The energy and the vibe in the, in the building um, and, and in the community and beyond is um, it's really wonderful because I think there's been so many people for so long that have wondered about this project. I think the great promise of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is that it will inspire the next generation of human rights defenders. Projects like these only come along once in a generation. And when projects are that big and have that kind of magnitude, there's going to be uh, challenges along the way, clearly opportunities. But, you know, I think that overall when visitors come to Winnipeg or they visit us on our website, I think that uh, they're going to find uh, a journey that is educational, that is challenging, because we do shine a, a, a light in some of Canada's dark corners, the history. And I think the, the, you know, the balance to that is to, is to bring in everyday Canadians who don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to be a human rights champion. But they do their work, they keep their head down, they understand where people's rights need to be changed or people's lives need to be better. And, you know, through a grassroots movement or through people that have made differences, we've become a better, stronger civil society. And so, you know, I think that's the, the, the human rights journey that people will, will experience when they come to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg. What are the exhibits that your first visitors this weekend are going to see? We're going to take them through the first four exhibits. That would be um, What Are Human Rights, Indigenous Perspectives, Canadian Journeys, and protecting rights. We've got a hundred milestones in terms of elements around the world that have happened with respect to human rights. Nobody is suggesting that these are the ultimate 100. But so we want to engage people and say, what didn't you see? What would you have liked to see as one of the milestones that was not represented here? And we can capture their conversation. And because we use a lot of digital technology, we have the ability to react and change and make this a very um, iterative human rights experience, which is really what the subject matter of human rights is all about. Well, uh, you mentioned that there was quite a bit of controversy around Aboriginal exhibits. Uh, They were offended that you didn't use the term genocide in the exhibit and also uh, by the Ukrainian community because uh, they weren't included in the, in the first iteration. Uh, how did you handle those? To be specific around the Indian residential school issue, when people would like us to determine because of the truth and reconciliation or because of news reports or whatever it may be of this very, very dark chapter in Canada's history, to say that the museum should determine it's a genocide, that would be, I think, um, uh, well, I'm not, I think, I know it would be um, a misuse of what a museum should do, and that is we're not in, in a position to create policy. However, in our exhibit, in, in residential schools, if there are lived scholars or people that are passionate about that subject matter, in the exhibit use the term that they believe it should be a genocide, of course we'll use that language because that language is attributed to the author as opposed to being attributed to the museum. 
The other issue that you mentioned, Libby, on the Ukrainian-Canadian uh, content, um, I think that we've had a very robust debate. They had an issue of specifically around their famine, the genocide known as the Holodomor. And, that uh, was a, a, a man-made famine engineered by Stalin. By Stalin, exactly, absolutely. Our first inaugural film in the Breaking the Silence gallery is about the Holodomor. Even before we were open, we engaged with some experts from um, Kiev that uh, we brought over to do a tour across Canada. Our whole purpose is to engage communities to try to ensure that, that we're using the education of human rights, whether it's on the Holodomor or the Holocaust or Rwanda or Srebrenica or the Armenian Genocide, which are all genocides recognized by Canada. We are asking everybody who has some concerns to actually come to the museum, walk through the museum, look at the exhibits, get a sense of where things are laid in and how they're told and how they're presented. And then if people, don't, if people still have issues, of course, we'll sit and listen. I've been speaking with Stuart Murray, CEO of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Losing a spouse is a catastrophic, life-changing event. In addition to coping with the emotional fallout, there are huge financial implications. How to cope? In just a moment, I'll be joined by Kelly Willis, a financial planner and a widow herself. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It's an unlikely theme for an international conference. Camp Widow brings together people from around the world who have lost their life partners. The financial fallout from this traumatic event can be especially difficult while grieving. Financial planner Kelly Willis made this the focus of her work after going through the trauma of losing her own husband nearly four years ago. She dropped by our studios in Liberty Village. My husband passed away in January of 2011. Sorry and for that. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, um, you know, like everyone, as you can appreciate, it's a it's a devastating life event for someone, but it also has tremendous financial consequences for most people, and uh, you you can't prepare for the emotional, but you can certainly do things to help you manage the consequences and results financially. I suffered tremendous anxiety. Um, around the financial piece in addition to all the emotional adjustments I was how, making. How long had you been married for? We had been married since 1998. My husband was diagnosed with a very rare form of skin cancer in uh, January of 2009, so we lived for two years um, not really knowing what the outcome would be. So that was a period of stress, and then, of course, uh, the grief period that followed was unlike anything I'd ever expected. But it led me to think about how I could help. During our marriage, I had been the um, primary overseer of our financial affairs. I had worked in the wealth management industry for 20 years. I have an MBA. Put it this way, I have a very high level of confidence around money. And yet here I was suffering tremendous anxiety. I, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night with my heart pounding out of my chest, and money worries were, were chief among my worries, even though there was no rational reason. And I kept thinking that I could, you know, if this is what it's like for me, what, what is my, it like? like for others without my connections and my experience and my confidence, frankly? It doesn't matter whether you were managing the financial affairs or not. You are left alone to deal with these things, and you no longer have your partner to discuss them with. 
So it's really very devastating and certainly more so for someone who wasn't involved, didn't know where things were, didn't know what they owned or what they owed and, and who to contact for help. Well, isn't that rule number one that uh, you should have an easily accessible list of what you own, where things are, keys to safety deposit boxes, uh, and on and on and on? Absolutely. That is critical for every married couple, in my opinion. And also making sure that your spouse is the beneficiary on whatever it is you have, RSPs, insurance. That's right. Having an up-to-date estate plan uh, is, is also critical. But it doesn't account for the grief that follows uh, and the emotional turmoil. And, you know, when you're left in that position, um, there's really no preparation for it emotionally. Grief can impair cognition by about 20%. And people. And, and people speak of widow's brain sometimes, you know, that fog that they're in the first year, um, the, the forgetfulness. And, and that's really no place to be making decisions. When you're at your emotionally weakest, you're having to make some pretty important decisions for your life. Is the biggest problem all the things that you have to do right after somebody passes away? Or is it the day-to-day management of your financial affairs after that's all sorted out? That's a good question. There are some things that need to be done right away, but really there aren't that many. Most things can wait, and seeking professional advice from some advisors who can walk you through that process and help you deal with what must be done now, what can be postponed. And some people rush to action because they want to feel better. That was my tendency. Others really want to avoid making decisions. And sometimes they need to be helped along gently to go at a comfortable pace, but still make decisions. So give us an idea of the things that really do have to be done. Well, um, bank accounts need to be uh, secured. Obviously, any property that someone has needs to be secured. Most things with respect to investments can be postponed. In fact, most people recommend postponing major decisions for a year, and that's because, again, you're dealing with the grief and you're dealing with so many emotions. Fear is very common. You know, that feeling of, you know, can I stay in my home or will I have to sell it? Um, Will I be okay? Many people, including myself, lose a major source of income when they lose a spouse. So those are things that may plague someone in the early days, but they don't need to be dealt with right away. Uh, A financial plan can help someone determine over time what what they need to do. What is the most common mistake that people make at this time? It's very individual. I would say that rushing to action is a common mistake to be avoided. Many people want to act to feel better, but slowing things down, seeking professional advice that can guide someone through that first year and beyond. I think that many people underestimate just how long the adjustment period is. It's in that second and third year that, well, the shock has worn off, casseroles have stopped coming, life has returned to normal, sort of. But it's at that time that a widow might be thinking about downsizing her house and finding a place that she can really make her own. 
or she may find that keeping up the cottage on her own is too much and she may contemplate selling it. She's now into developing a life of her own and it's at that time that uh, decisions can be made. But rushing to action is rarely beneficial. Realistically, you lose a spouse, you lose an income, you are going to have to make changes in your lifestyle. Generally, that is true. And in fact, I find that it takes about a full year to know what your new cost of living will be. Because let's face it, some expenses may disappear. Uh, You don't need that second car, but some expenses may go up. Maybe you need uh, more help around the house that you now have to pay for. Uh, So it takes a year and four seasons, really, to determine what your new cost of living will be and whether you have the income from your own means as well as through investments in any life insurance or pension uh, lump sum that may be available to you. Kelly Willis is from Newport Private Wealth Management, and she'll be speaking at Camp Widow here in Toronto next weekend. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. One of Canada's greatest artists is celebrating his 80th birthday. In just a moment, we'll return with new music from Leonard Cohen. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, Tony and Emmy Award-winning Blythe Danner stars along with Eric Lang in The Country House. The world premiere of the play by Donald Margulies is in previews at Samuel J. Friedman Theater. To California, where a collection of photographs from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art reveals a distinctively rich and diverse tradition of photography in Mexico. It begins with pictures from the 1920s, after the Mexican Revolution, through to more recent pictures of urban life and globalization. The exhibition is at the Bakersfield Museum of Art. In Paris, the much-awaited reopening of the Picasso Museum begins with a sneak peek this weekend. Visitors get a free early look at the empty, renovated mansion before some 500 of Picasso's paintings are displayed. And in Sydney, a series of movie screenings explore the visions and processes behind some of Australia's iconic buildings. They take place at the Museum of Sydney. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. Today, the great Canadian poet and troubadour Leonard Cohen is celebrating his 80th birthday. For years, he stood out as one of Canada's most prolific and profound artists. And with this milestone comes a new album. On Tuesday, fans will be able to get their hands on Popular Problems, his 13th studio album. Right now, we'll hear a preview. It's a typical Cohen track full of beautiful language, imagery, and uncomfortable themes. Here is Almost Like the Blues. I saw some people starving. There was murder, there was rape. Their villages were burning. They were trying to escape. I couldn't meet their glances. I was staring at my shoes. It was ass. It's almost like the 
That was Leonard Cohen with Almost Like the Blues, the first single of his new album, Popular Problems. That album will be released on Tuesday, and today, Leonard is celebrating his 80th birthday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandrill. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.